It ain't my fault. This is Jean Nathan, and it is time for Crosstown Conversations. And I have one of my uh, very short, shortest lists of favorite heroes in the city in studio with me, Vera Triplett. Um, and Vera knows exactly why. <laughs> I think I do. In the bigger context and in, and in the smaller context. But um, at any rate, um, Vera is a psychologist. She has been working with at-risk youth for most of her life. Um, and then post-storm, she kind of really jumped into the whole um, issue with um, our school reforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and having worked with so many at-risk kids, I think she had a clue yeah. how the school needed to to be experienced by a student. Yes. and I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And, and, you know, I often tell this quick little story, and I, I won't belabor it for my audience that's heard it before, some folks anyway who listen to me m- more than once in a while. But um, when I first came here, I did a story with young people in Milney Home. Mm-hmm. I did a little focus group, and I was trying to figure out, okay, what what's going on here? This is really before things got deep. And, and rough in town. And um, the kids all talked about how they were, um, they had trouble in school. Mm-hmm. One way or another, whether it was behavioral or in their studies um, or in just relating to the environment, um, they, had, they had issues. And so they kind of wound up out on the street where they could chase that elusive dream that we all chase of self-esteem, self-worth, respect, value. Right. Through the endorsement of kids on the street. And mm-hmm. then the endorsement comes from, unfortunately, mostly, not mostly, I really can't speak to that, but from a whole different landscape of activities right. and, and ways of living. So, um Tell me, first of all, um, you know, you're here basically to talk about the fact that Noble Mines, which is the name of your school, is moving to the East Bank. And so we want to make sure that folks know as they go through their enrollment process Mm -hmm. right now Mm -hmm. um, about your school and its availability. So let's start there so we don't forget it. Well, um, so my school is called the Noble Mines Institute for Ho-Chow Learning. Uh, Noble Mines has been around since 2014. We started... um, as an after-school and summer program, uh, we also did pop-up school on Saturday and um, morphed into a full-day, full-year charter school. Uh, we have just completed our first year. Um, we are what is called a Greenfield School, so we started with kindergarten, first, and second grade. Next year, we will have kindergarten, first, second, and third grade, and we will add a grade every year until we get to eighth grade. And you're moving and we're moving. So we are currently on the West Bank, which is interesting. We, um, I mentioned that we have been around since 2014. All of our programming had been in the East, I mean, on the East Bank, um, primarily in the mid-city area. Um, we had uh, originally planned to open the school in the mid-city area. Um, when we got the charter, we were essentially um, – told that the only place where there was a space would be a space for us would be on the on the West Bank. Um, and so that's where we've been for this past year. But 
But we're super excited to be moving um, back to the East Bank. Mm-hmm. We cultivated a lot of relationships here over that first three years. Um, some of those families did follow us to the West Bank. Some of them did not. Um, we are hoping to regain them. We are also excited about our West Bank families that we um, were able to cultivate relationships with over this past year. Um, and so we're excited. We will be at uh, 1333 South Carrollton Avenue, um, which is right at the corner of Carrollton and, and Willow in, in Upper Carrollton. And so we're excited about that location. Um, we're excited to be in, in such a walkable um, area and neighborhood as we have expedition learning as a as a big part of, of our uh, education program. Expedition learning. We're going to come back to that in just a second. All right, so um, let's see. So what was the name of that school previously? It was um, Lycée Francais was there. Oh, okay. But I think most people would remember that it was at for a very long time where the Anthony Bean Theater used to be. I know exactly where that is yeah. now. Sure. Okay. Um, I, I'm glad you mentioned Anthony Bean Theater because before you're gone, I'm going to ask you a question about um, youth theater groups in the city because mm-hmm. we have um, we have a production called We Being the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, a production called Creative um, called um, Ninth Ward Improv Opera, which we presented for the first time on the 10th anniversary, and we're doing it again for the tricentennial, and we want to do a youth performance where the young people literally conceive, write, perform, produce uh, this maybe half to 40-minute um, segment that will follow a video production of the original opera. Oh, nice. So I, I want your input offline or, you know, whatever. Just let me know who you think I should be talking to about that. Got it. Um, expedition learning. Well, so um, we take our kids out on a variety of different trips uh, throughout the year, um, weekly. Um, many of them have been to museums. Some of them have been to parks. Um, most recently, we went out to the fly, um, and they were able to fly kites. Um, the goal is always to try to connect um, the outside world to the learning that they're doing. Um, I, I Thank you for that. It's so frustrating to know how many schools the kids are just grinding away for exams and do not get out. And when I was growing up, I grew up in New York City. I lived in the Bronx. The way I learned about the city wholesale that I lived in was through the the school trips we took. Yeah, well, same for me. I, I tell this story all the time, which I think tells my age. But um, I grew up here in New Orleans and was educated in the public school system here. My my elementary school was Valina C. Jones School in the Seventh Ward, and every year we would pay a dollar, the the total of a dollar for the year, every student, for something that they called cultural exploration, and we would take field trips to the opera, and we would go and see ballets, and they would take us to the French Quarter. And we would go to restaurants. Like the first time I ever went to a white tablecloth restaurant was with Valina C. Jones School. The first time I ever ate a beignet in this city was because at Valina C. Jones, we were taken out um, to Cafe Dumont to have. Why can't, um, why can't all schools do this now? Well, I mean, I think that you mentioned there is just there's so much pressure and it's so difficult to try to get everything in. I think that we by design. Um, this was a part of our design, you know, from inception when we were developing the school. Um, 
we just felt like this was something that had to be a part of it and that it actually helped to enhance the academic um, performance of the day. Because what you're doing is giving students a, a, a window on the world that they're going to be a part of and have some understanding of how they can be a part of that world. Absolutely. I mean, it was me going to the museums in New York that that brought me into the art world and made, I, you know, I, I always say I, I chickened out and I didn't become an artist, but I became an an arts organizer and have been almost my whole life, no matter what else I was doing. And it was because I went to those museums. Yeah. Well, our kids they changed have been, my life. They've been to the Ogden. They've been to Noma. They've been to Studio B. Um, they've, they've, they've done the, the, the circuit. Um, and we think that's incredibly important. Um, I, you know, kids are natural artists, by the way. Um, and so I think for them to go out and see, um, that there are people who actually do this for a living and they have their art up um, in, in, in studios and in, and in places like Studio B, for example. It was just such an amazing thing uh, for many of our students. We have a little boy at our school named Langston, and there was a portrait of Langston Hughes in Studio B. And um, it was just so interesting for him to hear, you know, oh, my God, there's somebody else named Langston in here. And 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 I said, you probably are named after him. So, you know, it's it's just a very powerful thing. Um, but also just being out of the building and, and interacting with other adults in a variety of different ways during the day, I think, is important for kids. Oh, and, and, and you know, we're learning more and more about how important it is to spend time doing things cultural, recreational, just plain old recreations, spending time with your friends, it is being um, tallied up as a way to extend your life. Well, you know, we talk a lot about work-life balance for adults, but we don't talk a lot about that for kids, and kids exactly. need work-life balance as well. Exactly. Um, what else would you say characterizes your uh, your program focus at your school? Well, I think, um, as you know, we have, I have a, a mental health background, and so we have um, a lot of therapeutic approaches to discipline. Um, we have a clinical director who is great. Um, her name is Halima Dargan, and, and she has just been wonderful. Um, we do social-emotional learning as a, a part of our programming on a daily basis, um, so uh, she administers that, and then we partner also with an organization called SoNOLA, Social Emotional Wellness NOLA, and they come in and 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 they also look at things like healthy eating and and how to use things from the earth, and so um, that is a big part of 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 what we do programmatically. So so learning um, how to relate to people before on a preventive basis in a sense as in a positive way instead of having to teach people um anger what's it called anger conflict resolution conflict or self-regulation yeah i think which is such know, a negative way to come at it well i think i think the thing that people don't really understand, particularly about young children who have not been in school before, and, and most of our kids are kindergartners, and some of them have been to preschool, and some of them, of them hadn't. Um, we expect kids to just know how to come to school and do school, um, and it, that's a, it's a skill that has to be taught. 
Um, and a lot of times kids are punished for not being able to do something that they have never been taught. And so I think that on a just on a very base level, like how do you interact in a room with a group of strangers that you don't know and an adult who you don't know t- giving you all of these directions all day long? I mean, that's it's that can be a pretty scary place for a kid to be. Can um, I tell you, I have two personal experiences very much along these lines. So. In kindergarten, I had a special seat next to the teacher's desk because I was a talker, even in kindergarten. And so I was all over the damn place. And in order to put me in control, I would be sitting next to the teacher's desk, which probably was not the best way because by the first grade, I'm um, fast reader. So I'm like one of the fastest readers in the class. And we had a little exercise with a with a um, substitute teacher. She comes in and she's strung up these ch- uh, fish on the, you know, she was doing like a little experimental thing. And this kid who actually I had a crush on, I remember this very clearly, Hank Schwerter, whose brother was one of the three freedom riders killed in Mississippi. Mm. Hank drops the string and the fish come tumbling down. And I thought it was hilarious. And I said, do it again, Hank. My punishment was putting me back in my reading to the beginning with another boy that I had a crush on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's <was> humiliating, <laughs> utterly humiliating. Was that the best way to I'll counsel me on my, essentially what I determined about 30 years later to be my ADD? Well, I don't, first of all, I don't think you ever make reading a punishment. Um, we always want kids to think of, all of the content areas as something that uh, is enjoyable and that they want to learn about. It's just how we deliver it to them. I think that makes a difference. And so to use work as a punishment, um, I think kids have to be accountable um, to uh, produce when they are at school, when they are learning and there are assignments. Absolutely. But to use of course, you could work say as a punishment at the same time. A little I never bit forgot different. that lesson. Well, you <laughs> never here forgot I am thir- 45, 50, 60 years later talking about it. Well, because it's a, I, I, what I try to make help people understand is it's a, it's a sense memory. When, when something is a sense memory, you feel it. And so it's, it goes back to how it made you feel. And you yeah. were very clear that it didn't make you feel good. Not at all. Um, So speaking of delivery, so um, give me a little bit of an update on, you know, it was so controversial when we chartered our schools. And and I think we're still the only city in the country that has an all charter system. Um, uh, You know, just tell me, uh, give me a little status report on that. I know we don't have a whole lot of time for it, but I just want to hear it from your mouth. Well, you know, I think that there has been a lot of evolution over the past year. I think that the Orleans Parish School Board is now uh, starting to take more and more of a lead um, in what's going on educationally in the city. And I know that um, the RSD has taken a bit more of a backseat, and I and I see that continuing. I didn't know the RSD still existed. The RSD does still exist. Um, but the, the Orleans Parish School Board, I think that what you will start to see, and I think we've already started to see this. I don't, I don't think that this is... Um, any big secret, I think that the, the Orleans Parish School Board is starting again to take more of a front seat 
um, in the in the um, sort of the goings on, if you will, of schools in Arlene's Parish, regardless of whether they are OPSB schools or, or charters or whatever type they are. Um, and I think that that's actually a good thing because I, I, I think ultimately um, the kids are all of, of their responsibility. And I've talked with several board members who feel that way. And so they don't they don't sort of differentiate the schools um, based on what CMO they're under. They, they are our kids. CMO is the charter management organization. Sure. Um, so would you give it high marks at this point? Um, I don't know what kind of marks system. I would get it. I think, I think the, um, I think everybody is adjusting to a lot of change. And over the past, you know, decade, there has been a lot of it. And I think it's hard, um, to judge people in, in, in really what I would consider to be unstable, uh, territory. Um, we've, we've just had a lot of change. Um, accountability measures have changed. Tests have changed, you know, all of the things that we use to sort of judge whether or not um, a school is high quality or has a high quality seats. Those things have just been a bit unstable. So I know, I, I know. That's for, hard if you don't know how you're being judged. Right. Well, and it's and it's hard when it changes from year to year, right? Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't know that that story gets told enough. What I will say, Jean, is that I know that there are um, a number of people, the vast majority of them actually, who are working incredibly hard and who have um, the best interests and best intentions of children at heart and, and really want to do a good job for them and they want them to learn. People have different ways of going about that. I actually think that's a good thing. I don't think that we need one um, choice that looks the same. I think we need a diversity of choices that work for the diversity of, of kids that we have in the city. So everybody listening to the show can see now, I, I think, a glimmer of why um, Vera is one of my heroes. And so um, you certainly want to know more about how to enroll in her school. So let's tell them how. Well, um, so in Arlene's Parish, we are on one app uh, at enrollnola.org. We are number 311. Um, and if you are interested in us, you would just make us your first choice on one app. We are a type two school, which means that we also take students from across parish lines. So currently we have students from St. Bernard, um, East Jefferson and West Jefferson, wow. um, who attend our school, uh, right alongside of Orleans Parish students. And in order to enroll with us from outside of Orleans Parish, you can contact the school directly. Um, and, uh, you know, you can email me. There was such a thing. There is such a thing. Hmm. There is such a thing. Interesting. That gives kids a, a real opportunity to, again, um, meet different kinds of people from different kinds of backgrounds. That's the kind of school I went to. My high school was a citywide school. Vera, um, always love you and what you do. Thank Come you back so much for having going me. On We're super excited about this. And I'm going to ask my next guests to make their way into the studio so we can talk about Bayou Road. And things that are going on on Bayou Road. Sounds exciting. Shh, I'm sure you spend a little bit of time on Bayou I do, Road. I do. I spend a little bit of time on Bayou Road. Like I love in Bayou Vera's Road. Uh, community center picking up books for your kids. Oh, I, I love Vera. We actually, yeah. we've actually, we're going to do a field trip to that bookstore. There you to go. To community bookstore. Perfect. Community bookstore. All right. Thank you so much. Onward. Get to keep going. And here comes now the kitchen witch. I love that name. Cook. Books shop 
which is hosting a new lecture series. Um, it's called Historic Bayou Road, the Mississippi River to Bayou St. John. It's the first in a lecture series to be presented by Karen Atherton, who is a licensed tour guide for the city of New Orleans um, and the Friends of the Cabildo. Uh, and it starts Wednesday, next Wednesday, April 18th, 5.30 to 7, right during my showtime. And um, it's at 1490, 1452 North Broad. Um, and and kind of to. and also, by the way, most important, there's food. Yes. <laughs> there's uh-huh. a, there's a, a, a small charge, $7, but that includes food. Refreshments, yeah. Refreshments. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. all right, folks. Well, um, you know, I've done a little bit of, of looking into the history of Bayou Road, and it's fascinating because um, – and it's it's really about uh, the fact that it was part of the oldest road into the city of New Orleans from the bayou and from the lake. And the whole story, as I've heard it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Bienville um, was trying to come up the river and the Native Americans who were living here said, oh, no, no, that's not the way to go. You have to come into the lake, come up the Wrigley's, come into the lake, come to Bayou Road, and come into the city that way, which is how Bayou Road got to be so important. Okay, tell me I'm wrong. Okay, well, you're not wrong, uh, but the complete picture has to do with LaSalle coming down and not finding and finding the mouth of the Mississippi but then going back to uh, France, went back to France and came back in through the Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. and got lost for three years before the Three survivor, years? Almost three oh, years. Oh, I didn't know it was that long. He came back with, with four ships and 350 settlers and military, and after almost three years, he was down to 36 people and no ships. Oh, my gosh. And these people had been following him for almost three years. They killed him. And that stopped exploration. So then the brothers, the Lemoyne brothers. Wait, he was killed by the Native by the, Americans that were no, here? No, by his his, survivor, his own crew. By his they own said, crew. enough. Yes, <laughs> enough. So then they sent down later on the Lemoyne brothers, Pierre and Jean Baptiste, who were the Sieur Iberville and Bienville. And they also made the mistake of coming in through the Gulf of Mexico. And they found Biloxi, Mississippi. And they found Mobile, Alabama, and a man named Pogger, who was a cartographer, helped them to find their way down from Mobile, Alabama, to the mouth of the Mississippi here by water, which had been a route of the indigenous Americans for hundreds of years. By so, water? You mean by St. John? By, by aqua, by aqua means. Oh, moving by water. Moving yeah. by water. Yeah. To, from Mobile, Alabama. You can get to Mobile, Alabama by water from Bayou St. John. And what happened was that had been a trade route from the Indians on the eastern seaboard to come down here to trade with the Indians from the Gulf of Mexico and trade with the Indians from what is now St. Louis, Missouri. So St. Louis, Missouri, the Indians are trading down the Mississippi. The Mayans are trading up through the Gulf. And the Indians from the east coast are trading down here, all three converging on this point. And that's... When you would come in from Mobile, Alabama, Bayou St. John, uh, the, the Bayou Road, would intersect the city and go directly into the French Quarter. And if you walk that in the early morning hours, you walk directly into the sunrise. And oh, you walk back from the French Quarter, you're walking directly into the sunset. So they knew how to get down here. 
taking Bayou Road, and Bayou Road has nothing to do Navigating with Navigating by the constellation in the yeah. sky, day and or that, night. Yeah. And so for hundreds of years before the white man got here, yeah, uh, the Indians already did. had this place as a, what they call a portage. And, the and portage, that's right. Exciting. So we're on the oldest street in, in New Orleans. It actually, you might say in Louisiana, mm-hmm. because of, um, I, I, no, we can't say that, because there were other Indian routes, and I don't know how much you know about, um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of it, but the, the settlement that's up in, near Livingston, uh, it'll, it'll come to me, but there was a huge, huge, almost city, really, of, of uh, Native Americans there and that was a big trading center too. It wasn't you didn't have to go all the way up to St. Louis to trade. But um, okay, so trade. So of course the the real thing that that besides this interesting lecture series that obviously has something to do with the tricentennial that you've scheduled it. But um, you are the ultimate bookstore for foodies. Well, we <laughs> take it. Yes. <laughs> At least we think so. I'm sorry. I didn't introduce you guys. Oh. Introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Debbie. Hi, I'm Philippe. Want to go for a drink? Oh. <laughs> 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 um, and we have Kitchen Witch Cookbook Shop. Um, we like to market both sides. 1452 North Broad, but we also have an entrance on Bayou Road. And we made up the number. 26, what is it? 26, 25, 26. Yeah. <laughs> Bayou Road. So we are on Bayou Road as well. Right. And, um. Actually, there are very few bookstores dedicated to cookbooks in the country. Hey, listen, we don't have that many bookstores left, period. Mm-hmm. So it's a miracle that you're there at all. But, yeah, uh, uh, how many other uh, uh, bookstores are there that focus on just uh, cookbooks? I just had somebody in the shop today uh, who owns a cookbook store in uh, San Francisco, Omnivore Books. Hmm. And uh, she was saying, and I, I take her word for it, that there's probably like five of us in the country that for a while they were the only ones on the West Coast. Uh, so, yeah, we're part of a small little clan of, of crazy cookbook people. Uh, what kind of books? Oh, okay. So I just want to tell Jazz that I just want to warn you that we have a caller coming in at about 6.30. We'll probably take her just a few minutes late, but not too much. Okay, just um, mm-hmm. getting my logistics uh, right. So uh, of all the cookbooks that you have, and, and obviously you, you you must have books from, uh, you know, New, New Orleans and Louisiana and the South, but you have Covered cookbooks from the whole world. We've right? got probably ten thousand cookbooks. Oh my goodness! And as I like to say, we go from Alabama to Asia, from vegan to vegetarian, from two dollars to two thousand dollars. So we got two thousand dollars. Little something for everyone. What on earth kind of cookbook would be worth two thousand dollars? First edition, Julia Child's Mastering the Art. Oh, that's heavy duty. And there is, there were very few. (laughs) I've met her, by the way. (gasps) Oh, I wish I had. I'm jealous. Me too. The first edition, there was very few copies printed. What everybody is familiar with is the first printing, which was October 1961. And in that, it'll say on the inside, first printing. But then before the first printing, there was a first edition. Uh Because they were not ready to make a commitment to her. So they gave it a trial run in August of 1961. Uh-huh. And so when you get a hold of a first edition, it'll say first edition, 
but it won't say first printing. It's yeah. the true first edition. Got it. And that sells for $2,000 and up. Wow. So um, here, here's, two, um, here's a little test for you. Do you have Rudy Lombard's cookbook? Yes. Well, not this given moment. Creole we Feast. almost always have it in stock. Creole Feast. It's yeah. fabulous. Rudy Lombard and uh, Nathaniel Burton. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next, do you have Lola's Eric Eli's cookbook? Treme? Which The Treme or Smokestack. Oh, wait. Um, Smokestack Lightning is another one of his. We've got that one in. I'm out of the Treme right now. Okay. Now, here is a thought. Um, I don't I don't know what other African-American cookbooks there are. So, I mean, I happen to be familiar with both of them because I know both of those guys. But Austin So Leslie. you can probably tell me there's probably a whole ton of them, right? Oh, wait. I remember this one other guy from... He was from uh, the Low Country, but I'm not going to remember his name right now. A fabulous cookbook, actually, with you know Carolinas type mm. recipes, she crab instead mm. of our kind of gumbo with she crab soup. But um, you must have a lot of others. But you know what would be so great for you guys to do? I'm always coming up with ideas for people, so forgive me. You have so many people on Bayou Road from the whole, from Sixth Ward, Seventh Ward, from all over the city. You need to be collecting recipes from them and do your own cookbook, your Bayou Road. Um, That's a great idea. Anyone uh, like to come by with a recipe? Cookbook. Yeah. There was you know, a- and encourage people who are in your area. Can, can I say that right now? Yeah. Hey, y'all. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if, if you actually on. really did print the book, that maybe there'd be some kind of little mini royalties for everybody. But um, there's a cookbook that I love. One of my favorite cookbooks is a cookbook from Houston, which is all about um, the recipes of people who settled Houston. And it would have a little story about how they served food and ate at that house and then the recipe. And the, do you know do you know this book? It's it's a I have to get it for you. You have to see it cuz that's exactly what you want to do is how people serve their food at home, what the style of service was and so forth. But I like that. I'm going to run out of time in 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 seconds, so I want you to tell me cuz the only reason I'm sort of panicking about the time is because I have a pre-recorded piece at the end and the last time it ran long and it got cut off by the next show, and I don't want that oh, to happen no, again. No, no. So I gotta, I gotta. All right. So your lecture series starts Wednesday, April eighteenth. Karen Atherton sounds like an interesting lady. Yes. Tell me. Brilliant. She is. Give me, she give is. me the teaser. She's, she's been, she's what? She's a student for. She's 70, and she's still in college. She just goes after degree after degree. She just can't stop She's learning. a curious soul, right? Oh, I love well curious put. people. That's it. That's it. I love curious people. That That's kind of what I'm about. Don't forget, every week, Taco Tuesday, yeah. my husband, oh, my God, he loves his tacos, and paella. Mm-hmm. And may I add, All vegan. vegan. Yes, yes. Oh, my. And that's on Tuesdays also, the paella. I love yeah. paella. You don't get it around here that mm-hmm. much. So that's uh, paella, guys, is basically jambalaya. Yeah. You know? $4. (laughs) We call it jambalaya here. $4 each, or you mix mix and match two for seven, and it's a... a B-Y-O-B for an adult beverage. You keep coming back, folks, and I'll have more time for you next time. If I didn't have this preset uh, interview, I would intrude on it in Mm -hmm. a second because I'm crazy about your store. And I I bought some beautiful uh, plates there, some old antique plates that 
My husband and I use literally all the time. Oh, mm-hmm. thank And we you. can talk more about African-American cookbooks. I absolutely want you to do the Bayou Road. We'll, ha- we'll have to come up with the right name, mm-hmm. but it's a Bayou Road cookbook. Excellent. And, and, and people bring your recipes into the Kitchen Witch. It's right there, Bayou Road and Broad, um, 1452 North Broad. I would always come in the back entrance on Bayou Road. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. fun way to come in. Yeah. And you can actually even park there sometimes. Yes, indeed. A few parking spaces, too. And we have indoor bathrooms, too. Woo-hoo! <laughs> <laughs> you really want to say that? <laughs> yes, indeed. Most, most places say you can't use the bathroom. Oh, no, you? we market our bathrooms. We even supply toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right. Thank Look you. forward to seeing you next Tuesday. All right. Now, I have a good friend of mine who I credited. I don't, you, Amy, you probably did not see the newsletter, but I credited you with being an aficionado on um, Cajun culture. And, <laughs> and, I, and I credited um, Tina Gerard, whose art show is opening this weekend with being somebody who has managed to combine Haitian and Cajun roots in her work. And I described her work, and probably this is all wrong, so you can correct me, but I, I described her work as paintings made with beads and sequins as the Haitian flags that people are familiar with are made. Only her designs are her own designs, and they're not about voodoo so much as they are kind of um, whatever Tina wants to do. And and the current show is about parts known and unknown, and I can't wait to hear you describe that because my husband is doing a whole art series now called Invisible. Invisible. (laughs) Mysterious, right? Well, he's talking about how some of our people and neighborhoods and places are invisible. You know, it's it's about it's about how we treat some people as invisible. But he does it with all kinds of metaphors, including a great big sailboat painted black with black sails, so it's invisible at night. And then he, I gave him a book on Leonardo da Vinci that Walt Isaacson just recently wrote, and there it was in 1485. Leonardo da Vinci did invisible boats. There you have it. Nothing okay, is new. All right. But uh, okay. So Tina's show, um, y'all, her work is so beautiful. It's extremely colorful. It is made with sequence, sequence and beads, and um, and the show is opening. In Lafayette, so um, got to take a little road trip to see it, but it's it's worth it. Um, so tell me, tell me, give me the uh, give me the specs, give me the details on the show, where it is, when okay. it is, the the opening, and then let's delve it a little bit into the issue of the of the Cajun of the um, uh, uh, Haitian and Cajun roots of it. Well, yeah, the cultural crossroads. Okay, so um, Acadiana Center for the Arts. In downtown Lafayette is the location. She'll be in the main gallery there. I'm getting into such a bad habit. I forgot to introduce you again. Amy. Oh, okay. Amy Bonwell, yes. Thank you. Okay. Hi, Jean. Hi, Amy. (laughs) Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead. Very nice. Very. uh, uh, Your show sounds awesome. We have fun with it. Yeah, it sounds great. So so I am uh, Tina Gerard's niece. Um, She is a sister of my mother. 
So um, she's my aunt, and um, I've been uh, uh, very uh, closely uh, uh, close to her for a very long time since I moved to Louisiana from Kansas. So uh, that's our connection. Um, the show is at Acadiana Center for the Arts in downtown Lafayette on Vermilion Street, 101 West Vermilion. And um, it opens this uh, Saturday, um, April 14th, and runs through July 14th. And, and tell me, didn't, um, didn't uh, um, Tina actually, wasn't she one of the founders of the Acadiana Art Center? No. Okay. Um, so you're close. But um, <laughs> also um, opening this um, Saturday is a, uh, a revisiting of a arts collective, um, called the Artist Alliance, who, which I was a founder oh, of also, that Tina helped to um, start. Um, there was actually a great need for a contemporary art um, exhibition space in um, Lafayette uh, at the same time as Festival International, and Tina had her hand into both of those groups. And um, the, the current exhibit, Acadia and the Center for the Arts, is on the same block where the Artist Alliance, now uh, no longer, but they were located on that same block in the old Lafayette. Oh, I see. Before. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, because of Tina's involvement in the uh, artistic culture, they um, um, they added this, um, this exhibit to coincide with hers. So she'll be you know, surrounded by um, all her pals um, that exhibited um, at the Artist Alliance. Um, during the late 80s, early 90s, well, all the 90s. And at some point, it uh, it finally closed. We lost the space at the Lafayette Hardware Store, and it was just hard to locate it. Okay. But, uh, so the founders will have a show there. That's um, great. That opens this weekend. So Artist Alliance is the, the name of that group. Got the whole thing. But let me um, just warn you, I have a very small window for us, unfortunately, because as I've been explaining, I have a preset interview that's coming up that um, will run so to the end of the show. So we have two more minutes. Yeah, so <laughs> exactly. Yes. So tell me uh, a little bit more about Tina's work and um, yes. and how to find, I, I always want to tell people how to get there. How to get to the, the KDN Center for the Arts? Yep. Okay. Well, it's um, Jefferson Street is the main downtown street in uh, Lafayette, and uh, from New Orleans you would take I-10 to um, the Evangeline Thruway, the Evangeline Thruway to Jefferson, and Jefferson to Vermilion. How's that? Okay. Cool. (laughs) Now the art parts known and unknown. What is that about? So parts known and unknown. So uh, Tina chose um, an artwork to use as a visual image um, that. kind of exemplifies this it's um all of her work she one time called um her um some of her techniques as conflicting evidence so she um she has always uh experimented with different materials um she started out in new york as a, a pioneer in the video art um uh world um Dance. and performance installation she was involved in the Soho uh, group and food restaurant in um, 112 Green Street, a lot of um, um, uh, very uh, iconic um, places and groups in the 60s and 70s in New York. And then she did uh, move back to Louisiana in, in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, established a studio here and 
Um, so she changed from more performance insulation. Um, she was using uh, doing uh, uh, work that hung on a wall uh, during that time, but then she moved more towards paint on canvas, um, using um, imagery. Um, so, um, and then she uh, in the '90s she had a big shift where she went to um, Haiti through her uh, connections with, with Festival International. And she collaborated with artists there, and uh, their um, their sensibilities and their relationship to voodoo um, infiltrated her work. And so, um, actually, half of the work on the wall you will see is her sequin works, which um, she did a series representing the voodoo spirit, as the uh, sequin artists in Haiti tend to do. Right. But she made her own interpretation of the voodoo spirits, the loa they're called right yes so. I, I um i actually have one of the works that um uh, i acquired from her that uh hangs in my bedroom and i hope it's bringing me good luck i haven't figured it out yet <laughs> but oh oh um, sequin artist of haiti yes she yeah. also authored a book while she was um right. involved in all that and one more thing about the exhibit is um her i've located um i've helped her locate her original performance art and video art videos and uh so for the first time in a very long time her early works will be able to be seen in the gallery as well i highly recommend everybody to make a trip um those of you who are adventurous and like to get out of town and go see this show amy thank you so much say hello to tina and uh let's maybe before the show is over get tina to call in and and do the show also okay okay All thank right. you thank you dean you're welcome uh- now, listen, everybody, I want to tell you <clears throat> the next interview is with the consulate um, uh, of, of New Orleans, the French consulate to New Orleans, and um, he's a very interesting man, but he's very soft-spoken and um, has a slight French accent, so he's very entertaining, but you're going to have to kind of turn up your volume a little bit, and I think you will enjoy him talking about the show that's at the Historic New Orleans Collection that talks about the early years in Louisiana, and he supported uh, that show from his um, from his uh, from the consulate, and he is. Um, uh, just a, a very special uh, human being. And one of the things about the show that I'm crazy about is that it really didn't varnish um, the truth of the early years of our slaveholding um, territory. So uh, I, I credit to him and to the Historic New Orleans Collection and to the curators who worked on the show that they tell the truth. So enjoy this interview, and I um, hope you um, tune, stay tuned for the whole thing, and I will talk with you next week. Tell me why these documents are so interesting and why people should be interested in them. Yeah, because the documents really show the history of New Orleans and it resonates among the population of New Orleans now. If you see the, the city, the history of the city now, you will look down the, the street of the French Quarter, you will realize uh, nothing has much changed in terms of shapes of the city. And, if, and of course, the city has developed itself, modernized, uh, and rich, of course, but uh, you know it's still on, uh, still the same geographical situation. You're still on the bend of the Mississippi, between the, the, the Mississippi River and, and the lake, and uh, that's why what is it fascinating about the documents, seeing that dating back from the 18th century, you 
you face the same struggles. You see the connection. And, uh, mm -hmm. and um, actually, a lot of people um, right now with the tricentennial have been debating. In fact, I went to a conference yesterday where the Times-Picayune and the New York Times had gotten together to analyze the um, coastal erosion and the implications of that. And they were reminding us that Bienville chose this site because it was the um, it was the closest upstream where it was safe to protect against the British. And so so-called English turn is the markation of that. And also that um, it was high enough, kind of. So it, we're still threatened, of course, by uh, storms. And, and storms had a lot of effect on the location of the capital of the Louisiana area by the French as well. Are you, you're, you know about moving from Alabama to here. Yeah, it's, you know, it's a perfect sto spot of land to, to, to establish a city. You're just, uh, and still nowadays, you know, and you're just uh, spot on, on the globalization. You are one of the major ports in the, in the U.S. in North America, and it's you know, still striving. And uh, I think this unique position is a great asset for the city and for Louisiana as a whole. Mm -hmm. so, uh, and I'm uh, very happy to see that this, this roots are still very active now even more with uh, Asia um, and uh, yeah it's quite interesting to, to, to see it's keeping this way. So um, history is made up of uh, facts and myths and there's many myths associated with the cultural diversity of this region from early on and I listened to a debate about it this morning on uh, the radio as to uh, when African-Americans were introduced here, not, of course, African-Americans at the time, but more um, slaves, and uh, how that affected the city. And also, I always hear so much about the Code Noir, which was uh, instituted by the French, and how different it was from uh, the British uh, policies towards the cultural um, aspects of a community. The myth that I have always heard is that the Code Noir, which may have been strict on some, in some ways, but it also tolerated cultural expression. And this is one of the reasons why New Orleans is so culturally rich. Is that how you would interpret the Code Noir or not? Uh, I'm not an expert on that. Reading the catalog, yeah, I had a look previously. There is uh, some pictures devoted to the rich history. Uh, and you know this uh, dramatic history and that, uh, about slavery and what the Cold War was about. Mm -hmm. uh, you know it dates from 1685. So I'm not that sure it was that progressive you know, in terms of uh, cultural expression. But mm -hmm. that's part of the history. Uh, of course, uh, you cannot mention the colonial era without mentioning uh, the slavery. And uh, and in France, you know, there is uh, this foundation working on the memory of slavery and to how to educate the generations to come about this past that uh, we must also uh, uh, be aware of when we talk about the colonial uh, area or era and uh, especially in Louisiana, sure. So, so how, how does the culture of this area come across to you as a Frenchman? And I, I forget how long you've been here. How long have you been here now? I just arrived uh, in late August, so I'm very fresh. When? August. Later. Oh, so, so uh, right. You're you're very fresh, but you've been here long enough now to have a, a feeling for it, a sense of it. How does it strike you? How does um, what's your impression so far? A very um, for New Orleans, um, very vibrant city. It's really the adjective I'm, I, I tend to use. 
uh, you were mentioning myths, mythologies. I think one myth is to say, well, the French, oh, I'm going to, to New Orleans, everybody is going to speak French, it's a little France, not at all, it's uh, the US here. But it's a US with a, with a French touch, as we say, Française, mm -hmm. and we are very proud of it. So uh, just walking down the streets and reading the names in French is uh, such enjoyable for French nationals. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my, my duty is to say go behind the myths. Uh, a lot of people love France. They say, oh, you're French, you're French officials, marvelous. So it's good to, 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 to love France, of course. It's even better to know France and to know France uh, in 2018. So the Tri-Centenary is a good opportunity also to explain what France is about now. And, uh, you know, it's not a nostalgia. It's uh, really trying to look forward for the, what we can build together for the the years and maybe centuries to come. So you were mentioning also the environment issue. I think it's a huge concern for everyone. Uh, we were in, some, uh, in the south of the, the, of the Louisiana last week in Blackman. Uh, we are very struck by the, what we receive, a very warm welcome in terms of French heritage and so on, and very strong concern about everything related to coastal erosion and um, the, 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 the threats uh, in terms of biodiversity, for instance, it's really an issue that resonates for the French people now, right now. So uh, I think it's a common, common struggle. Is the, um, the coast of France, uh, the coastal areas of France, uh, threatened as ours are? I think it's different because here you have many uh, pipelines due to, uh, to uh, the oil industry. In France, oh, we yeah. don't have that much oil, mm. as you know. Yeah. But we are, we are, of course, we are impacted by uh, coastal erosion. But uh, you don't have as much saltwater intrusion as we have. Yeah, but some, you know, mm -hmm. some beaches in, in Normandy and Brittany are really struck by that. So uh -huh. uh, strong winds, uh, strong storms, uh, high tides, surge and surge. So yeah, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a common common threat. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, interesting that you say Brittany because so many of the French people who are here were originally from Brittany, as, again, as I understand it. I don't know if that's fact or myth, but that's no, what I'm saying. Right. I think it's fact. Uh, you have many, many, many Britons uh, coming from France to, 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 to Louisiana. Uh, it's still the case. We have some, you know, an association which is Brez America, which is very active in the U.S., maybe you heard of it. And uh, they try to bring the Britain, you know, Britain culture here to, to Louisiana. Uh, and you, you have also uh, here, you have some some good restaurants where you can taste also some some touch of, of Brittany. <laughs> so um, speaking of touches of Brittany, I'll tell you a quick little story and then I want to go back to the question of, uh, my next question will really be about the interaction between the African culture and the French culture because that particular blend has been very important in, among other things, our cuisine which is very much uh, a mix of the two, not to mention also Spanish influences. But I want to just mention the fact that when I first came here, I was a, a television journalist, and I had to go to South Louisiana to cover storms, among other things. And um, I can't tell you how many people I ran into uh, that were, maybe I was in my 30s and people were in their 50s, who spoke French only. Oh. There were still people, when I first came here, who spoke only French. In the um, coast, in the uh, South Louisiana parishes, so uh, I was fascinated at that. Um, there's also a myth that the French spoken here is not um, understandable by the French in France. But I happened to be in the 
later in the PR business, and I went with um, the governor of the time, Edwin Edwards, and a number of other people to France, and I was in a room at a press conference with Mitterrand, and um, they spoke each other with each other in French, and he said, I can understand him perfectly. Yeah. So that myth is not true. <laughs> yeah, it's a myth. It's not true. Uh, I will not speak uh, Cajun, as, uh, as uh, people in Villeplatte, for instance, uh, but we have we perfectly understand. It's an uh, old adjective that we don't use now because you know how we are educating now. Uh, yeah, a, a language in a foreign place, te in a colony, tends to get kind of petrified. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. It's, it's very charming sometimes to say, oh yeah, I could have used this adjective that I don't use. Uh, but yeah, we, we perfectly understand. And last time, when I give you an example about people speaking French, we went to, uh, to Villeplatte uh, uh, some weeks ago, and we just came to go to the restaurant. I went to the restaurant, order in English, and then we just pay. And at the end, uh, the lady just spoke French because we say, "Oh, you are French." I said, oh, "Yeah." And the table just around us, the old ladies were speaking English, and when they listened to us speaking French, they, say, they turned into French. <laughs> so the whole room was speaking French. Actually. Ah, love it. Yeah, so great story. It happens all the time. You know, with my team, we were also ordering in English on the table, and this. The waiter came and said, oh, you're French, so you are the consulate. He said, oh, yeah, but I, I study French in LSU. I really want, I'm really into it. So my, my job is also to reach out to these uh, young people mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to offer them something. Uh, and thank goodness for Codafil. Yeah, Codafil, we are, you know, we are a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. and we bring, we brought, you know. So, so tell me about the melange between the African and the French influences. Is that something you're aware of? My audience, I, I, my radio show is on a station that where my audience is largely African-American, so I want to address them. Sure. Well, you know, France is a very diverse country. Uh, we, are, we are made of all these waves of immigration and history from, from Africa, from Middle East, from Eastern Europe, South of Europe, and it still keeps on this way. So that's what our history is made of. So coming here in Louisiana, uh, we are well, very much uh, aware of uh, the diversity of the Louisiana population. And uh, coming back to the French heritage, of course, uh, we try to, to enhance the cooperation between Louisiana and uh, Guadeloupe, Martinique, and uh, bringing some students. Last week, there were some students uh, from uh, going to Baton Rouge from Martinique. It happens quite regularly on a regular basis in, mm -hmm. in both ways. So mm -hmm. it's very good because of the young generation know each other. Mm -hmm. You were mentioning cuisine, about habits, language, and uh, you know the French language is evolving, and you know, we have also some some programs to, to try to bring a bit of Creole language to Louisiana uh, in the schools, in the French immersion schools. We have done that uh, in Lafayette. Uh, we will assess to see if it works or not in terms of curriculum, but I think it's good because it shows that the French language is so diverse and so rich with its history. You know, so. Uh, we were working with, uh, with Bridget on this week, you know, it's the week of the Francophonie, of the French language, so we tried to, to bring each single week one word from French word from Louisiana that we can, you know, uh, broadcast and uh, highlight, so you will see tomorrow. Okay, well, I have a challenge for you. Here's another myth. So uh, most people in New Orleans um, think that the word lagniap is a French word. But I have had some research tell me that it's Af actually a Central American native, uh, uh, um, native indigenous 
tribe's word. Okay. So what do you know about the word Latin? Yeah. Uh, we, we, we made a research. <laughs> this is a test. I think it's in the test, in the, in the list of the words we wanted to highlight. I don't think it's a French French one, but so it's people think it's French, so it's okay. We can we can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> you'll take you'll take ownership. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> what what do you hope to accomplish um, in your tour of duty here? Um, and uh, maybe your ideas of what you can accomplish have changed since you've been here. But n now that you've been here almost a year, um, what's your um, sense of what you may be able to make happen? Uh, difficult question, but what I would try hard to do is to, to reach out to the young adults that have learned French, or their grandparents were French, as they don't really now connect with friends. So it's a bit yeah. of a lost generation. What can we offer to them to connect again with friends? And so we are working hard to, to with universities that they keep their French language department and also to provide some professional French training. You know, it's really basic. You have 90,000 French tourists coming per year here. And when people speak French, they tend to be, you know, to spend more and to spend more time here, so it's good for your economy as well. Mm -hmm. And if I was a, a boss in a, in a company, I would try to, to give a better position for somebody who speaks also French, because it's a skill you don't have to pay, it's just here. And so we try to do that, so it's a message we, we, we want to. My dream, and maybe it will not be for me, but for my successors, to have a pass in French from kindergarten to a young adulthood. It would be excellent. That's a that's a an admirable um, goal. I think um, I hope that you do well with that. Yeah. And um, one final question, um, and I know we haven't focused on the exhibition that much, but I'll do an introduction that will address that. But um, what? Um, how do you feel you as a person will have been changed as a result of your tour here? Your question is what will my what how, what will the impact of being here and experiencing the culture here? have on you as a person um, while you're here, but uh, more so even after you're gone from I think, here? Yeah, I think it will bring me more and more tolerance, more open-mindedness. Uh, and also, uh, it's very interesting for me because I discover uh, in that American society, you know, when you go uh, to the South in some isolated place, you talk with people, first they're very friendly, so it's very enjoyable. And then they tell about their concerns, and you say, oh, yeah, they said, we have some shared concerns as French and American people. And uh, that's why the, you know, I, I ride bike many keyboards to Paris. And so I said, this, you, should, you should know that in Louisiana we have some shared concerns. I was talking about environment issues, but uh, we have economy, how to, to go greener, for instance, these kind of things. And, and how not to left uh, communities left out. It's, it's so important in Louisiana and France as well. We have the same issue, how to reach out to, to the communities. And so education is key. And learning the second language is really enhance your, you know, your skills. You, you, and you do better because you are more armed actually in life. You have, it's, it's a tool you can. You have use. a different perspective when you can speak two languages. Uh, um, I studied French and I was I was good at it when I did it many years ago, but I didn't keep it up. So I, I always am very jealous of people who are bilingual because I think it, it really does um, change the way you think about the world because you're more open to different cultures. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I really enjoyed talking. Is there something that you wanted to touch on that we didn't touch on? Is there something coming up, an event uh, that you want to tell people about? 
Oh, no, just to tell you that uh, we have the International Week of New Orleans for the Tricentennial, so we have many delegations from France coming, and uh, we have a minister, a French minister, Jean-Baptiste Lemoyne, who has the same name of Lemoyne de Bienville, who uh -huh. uh, will come uh, for the, uh, the third week of, of April, so oh, uh, I think it will up. be nice. Yeah. And uh, uh, Orléans, you know, so we have the sister city agreement signed between the two cities in January. Uh -huh. We'll have a delegation from Orléans coming back. So. You know, the, the relations are really uh, um, accelerating now, and uh, it's, it's quite an exciting time. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a wonderful time here. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations coming to an end on WBOK, and I will visit with you again next week. <laughs>